Reading from Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Oh, hold on just a second. I forgot. Quick announcement. I've got a letter here to read from you. Um, we have several members of our church that are incarcerated right now, locked up behind bars, and we do correspond with them from time to time. Here's a letter I just want to read as we, before we start the sermon today. Let's see, where does it start? Here we go. This is one, one letter that I haven't read yet. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, that I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, I, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has the ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Revelation chapter 2 is the fourth of the letters, the seven letters written to the church in Asia Minor from the Apostle John who was essentially imprisoned on an island far from home, far from where he and his Jewish brothers had first walked with Jesus on this earth and seen him die and rise again and hear from the island of Patmos where he was in exile, where he was politically pushed out of his home for the sake of his preaching the gospel of Jesus. Here he is writing letters to the churches and the seven letters as we see on this map on the screen, as we've been looking at, are in a semicircular pattern around Asia Minor. First, the number one pin there was the church of Ephesus, who was a church that loved good doctrine and teaching, but their love for God and people was weak and had grown dim. And then we went to the next church in Smyrna, just up the road there, number two. And the church in Smyrna was a faithful church that was in the world in a major way, and the world was persecuting the church and causing great suffering for their faithful witness to the gospel. And then the third church up to the north there is Pergamum. We looked at that last week. Pergamum was a church described as having too much of the world in the church, like a boat taking in too much water into its hull. And so ha here we are today with the fourth of these letters, the most insignificant town, the number four pin, Thyatira. It's a small town compared to the others. Nothing crazy important happened there, but they get the longest of the seven letters in the book. So something was going on that needed to be addressed. Thyatira was a place of trade guilds, like ancient uh, labor unions. 
where people would come together for their trades. Maybe the plumbing union would come together and dig their trenches back in the day. Or I guess they didn't have electricians back then. So we'll move on to the carpenters and the stone cutters. And, and they would get together for, there's power in the people, right? There's power in concentrating your effort and working for your rights and claiming your benefits and saying, we're going to stick together. And as you had these tight relationships formed in these ancient labor unions, it was more than just to make a good day's wage, it was also a political connection. It was even a religious connection. And they would even have feasts like, hey, let's create you know, a, a hall or a house where we can come together and drink and eat. And it was even more than just fellowship and eating together. It was also a religious bond that was created. And they would begin worshiping certain gods dedicated to certain crafts that they would do. Maybe they would say, we're going to dedicate this new uh, construction project to the, the god Apollo or something of the sort. And they would begin to eat food and as they would eat together in their guilds, they would say, hey, today's meal we're dedicating to such and such a god, maybe Zeus, and so let's offer this food to him and pray to him. And that's what was going on in this town. Now, now that story isn't addressed here in this letter, but that's the background. That's really all that we really know about Thyatira in, in a very significant way. You might see a hint of this in Acts chapter 16 when Lydia, who was converted to the Lord, was a maker of purple cloth. And she was from Thyatira, so maybe that was her trade. Maybe she was in one of those labor unions for the cloth makers. And here she is finding the Lord. And these new believers had to make a decision. Do I continue to live in the world and practice the religion of the world and even eat with people who are sacrificing to idols and other gods, or do I begin to show my allegiance to Jesus? And at these parties, you can imagine, as parties often go, when there's alcohol flowing, things get a little crazy sometimes. Sometimes there were things of sexual nature that would start happening. You know, the men and the women, and maybe they'd bring in some prostitutes or these sorts of things, and you would have to make a decision. Do I stay at this party, at this dinner, in this trade union, or do I leave and risk losing influence, reputation, connections, even my own job, even a way to make money? And so they were having to make hard choices. And Jesus writes to this church, and he says to them, I see your good works. You're doing some great things. You're hard workers. Give you that. You're blue collar all the way. And in the church, you're great people. You're, you're very warm and welcoming. You're doing great works of service. You're very service oriented. You're, you're all about social justice, perhaps. But he says, there's one thing that I have against you that we need to talk about. And I'm just going to mention one, only one, and it has to do with the teachings of Jezebel. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But, but Jesus comes to a church that on some days or some of the people or from some angles as you look at it, the church is great. They're doing great works. And even the works they're doing today are far better than the works they did yesterday and last year. He says, using the same phrase that Jesus uses of himself in Revelation chapter 1, he says, I am the first and the last. Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He says, your last works are better than your first works. Same words. You're doing great. You're making progress. But there's one problem. If we look at the church from an angle over here, or individual members of the church will be interviewed, we start to see what could be called a bipolar church. Two different opposite ends of the spectrum. You know what the bipolar disorder is, is, of course, when people, some days or even some weeks, they're just doing great. They have energy, they have joy, they're just getting after it, working hard, doing great things, and then the very next day, they might crash into a very dark depression where nothing will make them feel better. There's no solution to their pain. And so I'm not trying to psychologically diagnose this church as bipolar. I'm just saying it's a framework that we can see two polar opposites happening in the same congregation here at Thyatira. A church so friendly, so kind, so devoted to the Lord and to people, doing great work, but the same church 
has a major problem that's infected it. Like a disease that's crept in and made it sick. Let's look at that under this first point that Jesus sees the outstanding outside of the church, but he also sees the infected inside of the church here at Thyatira, this bipolar church. Thyatira was like many modern churches today, doing great things on the outside, raising lots of money for all sorts of good causes in the neighborhood, uh, planting gardens, helping with sex trafficking, you know, feeding the hungry, clothing the, the naked. Great things, but we have one problem when it comes to the issue of sexual ethics, sexual purity, how you use your body in relationships with other people. What kind of thoughts do you have in your mind? How you spend your free time on the internet, let's say, a bipolar church, humanitarian, selfless in many ways, but then maybe on the private side, in the private life, a very selfish way to live and think and using and abusing people in a very shameful way. An entire area of, of the Christian life that they have totally missed, misdirected, misunderstood, misguided. They're missing the mark of sexual purity in, in one example, and the only example Jesus brings up here, and how they're spending their time perhaps in the community at these feasts, worshiping other idols, even to the point of sexual immorality. And so, here's a publicly upstanding, outstanding church that's privately, and maybe on the side, fallen into some deep, dark, secret sins. Infected with a, a dark desire, dark disease. And Jesus says, I have a word for you. I see what you're doing. Great works. I also see what you're doing. We have a lot to talk about, he says. Now, not every person in the church would be bipolar to this degree. So don't think that what I'm saying is every, everyone in Thyatira had a major problem with sexual sin. But as he looked at the church as a whole, he said, there's definitely something wrong in your midst. There's some, some infection that's crept in through a certain person and it's beginning to spread to others who are following this person down the wrong path. Jesus introduces himself to this church as the Son of God who has eyes like flames of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now what does that tell us? Well, first, Jesus is mincing no words. He says, I am the Son of God. Now, when the Son of God writes a letter to the church, don't you think the church should read it? Pay attention to it? And when he introduces himself, he doesn't just say, I'm Jesus, the Lamb of God who laid down his life for the sins of the world, and I'm just the meek and mild man that loves everyone and is tolerant to everyone. No, he says, actually, I'm the Son of God who has eyes that burn like fire. That means my eyes are holy. They're pure. They're too pure to even look upon sin. And they are looking into a church that I love and I see sin in the church. I see into your heart. I see into your mind. I search hearts and minds. Literally, he says, I search kidneys and hearts. That was the ancient Hebrew way of not saying I have x-ray vision and I can see your internal organs. He was saying, I know your deepest thoughts. Because the Hebrew mind took, like the kidney, for instance, which does what? Filters the blood, right? The kidneys filter and he says, I can see deep inside your thoughts and desires. What you filter and, and keep and say, I'm going to keep that thought. And what you filter and say, I'm spitting that thought, I'm casting that thought out. That's not a good thought. I should get that out of my life because I'm a Christian. I have a call to holiness. He says, I see the deep things that no one else sees. The, the thoughts you, you filter before you say something and the things that slip out. I see it all. He says, I see your heart. Now, of course, he wasn't just talking about the organ that does what? Pumps blood, circulates blood. He's talking about the the emotions, the will, the things that make you tick, the things that make you alive, the things that get you going, the things that are deep inside that no one knows about. He says, I see all of that. I have eyes that burn like fire. I see your heart and your mind. And he says, tell the 
It's all the churches in verse 23. All the churches. This isn't just for a message in Thyatira, here in the north of, of Asia Minor. It's a message for all the churches. The seven letters to the book in Revelation were in a semicircular fashion, seven of them embodying this, the idea of perfection or completeness. And he says at the end of every single letter, let anyone who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he says in this letter, all the churches will know that I am the one who speaks and searches hearts and minds. This is for all of us. He sees everything. And he says, I'm the one with feet like burnished bronze or uh, refined brass. What is that about? Jesus standing here with these glowing brown bronze feet. What does that have to do with anything? That's the same vision that John saw in chapter 1 of Jesus. Eyes like fire, feet like bronze. What does that mean? What does it have to do with a church that's struggling with this bipolar disorder? Well, feet that are burnished like bronze, they're not dirty feet, for one. They're clean. Okay? They're, they're refined in a fire. Now, they're strong. They're not weak feet. They stand firm, and they're clean. Feet are very important in the Bible, and especially the feet of God, who in the Old Testament is, is not pictured as a man, but we have visions of God in the Old Testament, and he reveals himself in certain ways. For instance, when he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, not just his eyes are burning like fire, but he says, I am a consuming fire. And what did he tell Moses on that day, on that dusty wilderness ground? Take off your... Not shoes, guys. You're wearing shoes? What are you, come on now. Sandal. There you go. See, that's bonus points right there. Take off your sandal, for the place you are standing is holy ground. My feet, the bottoms of my souls, God was saying, is holy. Everywhere I touch my, my feet stand, holy ground. What about the story in... First Samuel, where the second Samuel, I'm sorry, the, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was being transported on a wooden cart, being pulled by oxen. Remember the story? And they weren't supposed to be transporting the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the Ten Commandments and the very presence of God was embodied there in, in spiritual form. And, and they were carrying along this, this cart, and it was bouncing along, bouncing along on the, the bumpy ground. And suddenly, the cart began to slide. The, the Ark began to slide off the cart, and other that well-intentioned, sincere believer who forgot the law that you're not supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant, reached out to, to save the day and, and dive just at the right moment and catch the Ark before it hit the dirt. And what happened when his hands touched the Ark? He died on the spot. Reminding us, like Jonathan Edwards says, that he forgot that his hands were dirtier than the dirt. He should have just let it hit the dirt because the mud itself is cleaner than a sinner's hands. And so, and, and so the people in shock said, wait, oh, now we remember the law. Oh, here's how we're supposed to carry the ark. They put poles through the ark and they carried it on poles like they're supposed to. And every six steps they took on the way home, you know what they did? They stopped and laid the ark down and they made a sacrifice to the Lord to say, thank you. Thank you for not striking us dead. Thank you for still being with us. Holy feet. Holy ground. Jesus is the one whose eyes burn like fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. And he stands among the church today. He, he walks among the churches in the book of Revelation in these seven letters. And he says, I am holy. I'm with you. I know you. I know everything that you go through. I just have one little issue to bring up to you. Just one. We'll get to that in just a minute. You remember what the book of James says about bipolar churches? It says, True worship isn't just looking good on the outside and doing good service projects. Tutoring the kids, you know, after school programming like we do here, that's great. But is that enough? You know, feeding people that are hungry that come in off the streets on Sunday afternoons into the church and we say, oh, let's make some extra food so we can have 
extra to, to share with our neighbors. Is that enough? That's great. But is that enough? Service. Love and concern for other people. He says it's not just outside religion I'm concerned about. In James chapter 1 he says, I want what's inside your heart too. I want not just for you to visit widows and orphans. And when I drove to Iowa City this week with Cynthia and Tony, we were going into a situation where there's a young widow here who's with us today. This little boy, like an orphan, laying there in the hospital bed. Visiting those in need, visiting those who are broken, those that are at the end of the road, at the end of their rope. But is that enough? Is that enough just to say, hey, let's help each other in our times of distress. Give us a shoulder to cry on, a hot meal to say we care. No, he says, true religion is visiting widows and orphans and also to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. What if after all the good deeds we do, after all the, the good works we provide for each other, then we turn around and we do things that are, as Jesus says here, sexually immoral? What good would it do? He says, I see it all. Don't be bipolar. You've got to be integrated. You've got to have one vision for holiness in your life. And it, it touches everything. It's not just about social justice. It's about sexual purity, too. You don't have to choose. Actually, you do. You have to choose both. You have to choose both. He says in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, in this vision where John first sees Jesus, the Son of God, it says the same thing, that his hairs were white like wool and like snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. And in verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters, and in his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the right thing to do. The right thing to do before a holy God. But Jesus laid his right hand on John and said, Fear not. I am the first and the last. He put his hand on him. Hands too holy to touch. Feet that were not worthy to untie his sandals or stand in the same ground because it's holy ground. Or we, we should be making a sacrifice every six steps because we're in the presence of the Holy One. And yet the Holy One touches the, the shoulder of the sinner. It says, don't be afraid, John. I am the first and the last. I am the eternal one. I have come from eternity into your midst to stand among you and to be present with you and I will touch you with love and grace. He says, if you're on my side, I'm on your side. Like the character, the lion in the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, Aslan, he told the young girl, Lucy, he says, don't mistake my kindness for weakness. I am not safe, but I am what? Good. She said, are, are you safe? Can I, can I be in the same room as you? Can I be on the same planet where you walked? He says, well, I'm not safe, but I'm good. Don't be afraid, but fear the Lord. That's what God told his people on the mountain when he gave them the Ten Commandments. Do not be afraid, but fear the Lord. He's holy. But He's with us. He loves us. He wants us to take our sins seriously and know that we can rest in His saving grace. We don't have to be a bipolar church, brothers and sisters. Jesus sees the outstanding things we do on the outside, and He also sees the inside, and He wants us to be clean and holy. The second thing that we learn from this letter is that Jesus will not tolerate a tolerance for disease that leads to death. Jesus will not tolerate 
a tolerance for disease that leads to death. Should a surgeon, prepping for the operating room, putting on the gloves, getting the instruments that have been cleaned and purified in the solution or in the, the autoclave, you know, baking away the germs, should that surgeon take that scalpel and prepare to operate on the patient and say, well, this one's got a little bit of dirt on it, just, but it's, just a little bit won't hurt, right? Did you clean this one off, attendant or nurse or, you know, whoever's helping? Well, no, but we really didn't do much with that. It was just like a little superficial scratching or cutting from the previous patient. Well, go ahead, just a little bit of germ, would that hurt? Would that hurt? Would you want someone with a little bit of bacteria on a scalpel cutting into you? Would you want someone sticking the thermometer that another patient had in their mouth and yours without wiping it with alcohol or getting a new tip on there like we do today? Of course not. So Jesus says, likewise, I cannot tolerate anything that would cause disease or death in my people. I would be a, a bad surgeon. I would be the, the bad physician, not the great physician, if I tolerated any little bit of sin in my church that would spread like germ and disease and infect others. Can't tolerate that. And here we have a woman named Jezebel who's leading this movement within the church in Thyatira. A, a real person. Her name probably wasn't Jezebel. But let's look at who the real Jezebel was first, and then we'll look at what this person was teaching. The, the real Jezebel was the queen of Israel back in the days where Ahab was the king, back in 1 Kings chapter uh, 16 to 22, I think. Ahab's the king, Jezebel's his wife. Now, Jezebel was the daughter of the king of the Sidonians over by the Mediterranean Sea, and, and his name was Ethbaal, or Ethbaal. You can hear even in his name, he served Baal, the false god. No, not Yahweh the God of Israel. So this is the daughter who grew up worshiping Baal, and she gets married to the king of Israel. They make a, you know, an allegiance, and I'm sure that the two nations were like shaking hands like the Sidonians and the Israelites. Now we're in this pact, this allegiance, this, this covenant together. And, and now she brings in her form of worship in Israel. She begins promoting Baal worship among the Israelites who were only to worship God, Yahweh. And so Jezebel's promoting this Baal worship, but she's also a very greedy person. And one day, you might remember the story of Naboth and his vineyard. She sees this, this vineyard that she really thinks is beautiful. All these great vines that you can make a lot of wine out of this. And it's just a beautiful land. It's in the land of Jezreel. And so she sees this guy, Naboth, and she says to her husband, Ahab, I want that vineyard. Get it for me now, sweetie. You know how women can be, right? I mean, I'm just, I'm just, never mind. Forget that. That's not in the notes. Sweetie, I want, you know, a steak now because I'm pregnant. I'm having cravings. Honey, I want ice cream now. You know, I've heard these things before, but this woman took it an extra measure. She said, I want that man's property now. And she was a queen, so she thought, I can get what I want. This man's property was passed down through his family line. It was his inheritance. It's very important in the Bible that you don't just sell your property to anybody or give it away. But she says, sell it, give it away. We're going to take it from him. Go and kill that man. So eventually, after some false accusations, they killed Naboth, and she moved on to his property and took his vineyard over because she's a queen and she can do whatever she wants, right? Greedy, unjust, wicked, murderous. This is Jezebel. Well, her life ended in the fulfillment of the word of God, which was prophesied earlier in 2 Kings chapter 9. You can read about it. It's kind of a gross story, but I'm going to tell you just for effect. What happened is she's sitting up in her palace room, putting on her, her fake lashes or her mascara. You know, it's like real thick. You can imagine Jezebel, real thick, black mascara, like raccoon eyes. And then she's putting on something for her head. I don't know exactly what she's putting on, like some ribbons woven throughout or maybe her weave or something or a crown. She was putting something on her head to make herself look really pretty. And she's in the window dressing herself up with her Maybelline, 
someone drives up on a chariot below and says to the servant, hey guys, are you on God's side or on wicked Jezebel's side? And they're like, we're on God's side. And they're like, well, throw her out the window. So from her tower up above, these two servants toss her out the window and she splatters on the ground. And then the horses and the chariots trample over her and they leave her there in the streets and then the dogs come later and they eat her up. And all that's left, it says in 2 Kings chapter 9, is her skull, her hands, and her feet. Gross, right? Disgusting. Yes. Serious. Yes. That's what the Bible says right there. 2 Kings chapter 9. Why? Why is this story even told? Well, this happened in the land of, guess where? Jezreel. Where she'd stolen this man's property and taken his life. And guess what? Justice is being served. Tip for tat. Eye for an eye. This is what's happening. She's being punished on the very ground. And her blood is spilled on the very ground where she spilled that innocent Israelite blood. Naboth. And this is Jezebel. Justice is given to this wicked woman. And, and here we have in this story, this letter that Jesus writes to his bipolar church in Thyatira. He says, now there's someone kind of like Jezebel who's made her way into your congregation. Now her name's really not Jezebel probably, but he, you get the picture. He's saying she's like Jezebel Jr. She's in the line of Jezebel, in the tradition of Jezebel. She's bad news. Okay? Now she's teaching some things. Not everything she taught was bad. Probably She probably had some good doctrines, some good things to say that were according to the scripture and the church probably could let her in the front door because she wasn't the most obvious heretic. But eventually she began teaching these things that she would call deeper things. You know? and so uh, She would probably say it like, I'm teaching you the deeper things of God. And then the letter says, but some people call them the deeper things of Satan because they can see right through her lies. And so these deeper things would be like, hey, I've got a more sophisticated way to think about relationships and sexuality. So instead of saying, you know, one woman and one man get married and be faithful to each other until death do us part, you can have it really a lot of other ways. There's lots of different variations on this theme. You can be more creative and have options with how you use your body and how you use other people's bodies. That's what Jezebel is teaching. Freedom. God's word, eh, it's kind of stifling, you know, it kind of puts you in a box. Freedom, she said, and people like that idea of freedom, and so they started following her, and they were following her teachings. Just a little bit of bacteria on the surgical instruments. Just, just a little bit of untruth to mix in with the gospel. And it happens today in our churches, doesn't it? Someone says, you know what, I mean, in today's culture, we've got to be realistic, right? I even saw a bumper sticker just last week on someone's car just across the parking lot from my house, and it said something like, I belong to such and such a church, and it said this, a community, it said, I belong to a community that lives in reality. And I know enough about that church group that I think what they're saying is, guys, come on, let's, let's, let's live in reality. Let's live in the 21st century. We're modern people. We've got we to gotta put some of this Bible to the side. I mean, there's some of it we can believe, but then they say there's other parts, like the parts about sexuality and things. It's a little outdated, they would say. So let's live in reality. Let's just embrace the culture, and let's build a bridge to the culture, and let's say, let's just be real with each other. It's always going to be here now. Like, it, the infection's already happened. Let's just deal with it, get over it, and just be nice to each other and love each other. Let's feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit those in prison, and let's just do those good works. Sexual purity? kind of out of date, not really in touch with reality, okay? But is that, is that what we're left with, is a false choice, a bipolar cho- choice? A bipolar church? No, Jesus says, I've made a covenant with you, my people. A covenant. I've made vows to you to protect you, to keep you pure. You're my bride, you're my people. I have holy feet and blazingly holy eyes, and I see what you're doing, and you don't have to make this false choice. Now he says, be faithful in the bed and at the table. He says, sexual immorality and eating with these idols like you've been doing, unacceptable. 
there's two forms of intimacy here. There's, there's what you do with your body in the bedroom, and there's what you do at the dinner table with these idols and worshiping with these other people who are... He says, I don't tolerate that. What husband or wife would say, you know what, just one other lover would be okay. You know, just a little, a little extra thing on the side, a little fling, a little sideshow. Would that be okay? Just, just one time. One person. I mean, if you let me do that, I'll have an outlet. I can get it all out, and then I'll come back to you, and I'll do good works at the home. I'll do the dishes. I promise I'll vacuum the floor. I'll wash my own clothes. As long as you give me just a little something, a little something on the side, that's all I need. It wouldn't, it wouldn't fly. Jesus says it doesn't fly. I can't tolerate it. We've made a covenant together. We're in relationship. I love you. I'm not asking you to be perfect. I know that you're not going to be perfect. I'm asking you to love me, though, and to make progress. He tells the church, you've made progress. You know, your latter works were better than your former works. You, you made the progress. And I'm only bringing up this one issue, just this one thing. Stop being unfaithful to me with your hormones and your sexuality. That's what he's saying. This is not an easy message to preach. It's not going to draw big crowds to our church. Some of you are going to feel like I'm stepping on your toes. But what else can I do? This is the fourth letter that, that's in the series that I'm preaching. I could skip it, or I could preach it. What do you guys want me to do? I feel like I have no choice. I have to. Tommy asked me to. I have to. Jesus says, I'm not going to tolerate the obvious disease that's in your midst that's going to cause you sickness and even lead to what? Death. Death. You know, some people say sin doesn't pay. It doesn't pay to sin, right? Don't do it. It won't pay. It does pay to sin. Sin does pay. Yeah, it does. The wages of sin is death. Jesus says, now, when you've been following this woman Jezebel's teaching, you know, Jeezy Jr., let's call her young Jeezy. I don't know, that's not a real name, but let's just call her Jeezy. You follow this woman, this prophetess, and he says, here's what's going to have to happen. He says, you're climbing in bed with people who aren't your husband or wife, like she's teaching you it's okay to do. That's going to become your sick bed. You're in bed, and at the very place where the immorality is happening, just like in Jezreel, the very place she stole property and killed a man, that's where it's going to go down. That's where punishment is going to happen. That's where the judgment will take place. In the bed that you're enjoying now with some other person, that's where the sickness will begin to creep in and destroy you. And then he says, and behold, I'm going to throw her and the, the ones that follow her teaching, calling them her children, the, the, the disciples of Jezebel, I'm going to throw them into great confusion and tribulation and even I'll strike them dead. So to catch up with them. The wages of sin is death. And I'm not just you know, being like intolerant here, they're asking for it. They're crawling into bed with people that they shouldn't be. They're getting diseases themselves. They're making decisions that have consequences. It's not like I'm forcing them to die. They're willingly walking down that road that leads to death. All I'm asking you to do is turn from it. Repent. He says, I've given them time to repent. All I'm asking you to do, Jesus says, is live. Stop making bad choices that lead to death and sickness. And I'm just asking you simply, come the way of righteousness. And when you come to the fork in the road, at this ancient crossroads, and you have to make a decision, do I go to the right or to the left? Do I go the way of freedom and whatever I feel like, or do I stick with the word of God and, and purity? So I'm just simply asking you to choose the way that will lead to life and blessing. Make progress. The third thing and the final thing we're going to look at from this letter is that Jesus calls us, his church, his bipolar people, to stop living this tug of war where we're being ripped apart by these false choices we have to make. And he says, let go of the burden of these false doctrines and this false, these false deeds that the Jezebels are telling you to follow. And, and grab hold tighter of the good works that I've called you to. Jesus calls us to 
release the burdens of false doctrine and false teachings like this, to, to throw them away and to grab hold of the true works of Jesus himself. He says in verse 23, And I will strike your children dead, and the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Your works. He's focusing on your works. What are you doing? And he also focused on her works in, in the previous verse. Verse 22. He says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I'll throw into a great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. Her works, Jezebel's works. And then he says, in verse 23, I will, I'm sorry, I just read 23, um, 24. Sorry, I just lost my place. He says in one of these verses, let me find it. Do, 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 do. Where is it? Oh, verse 26. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. My works, he says. Jesus says my works. You hear? There's her works, Jezebel, and there's my works, and then there are your works. Now, he's, he's saying you have to choose which you're going to follow. Your works have to go either her way or my way. The world's way or the way of the Savior. You're in this tug of war, you see? The bipolar tug of war. You're being pulled in both directions. Do I hold on to the teachings of Jezebel? What feels good, but I, I think is wrong, and I'm pretty sure the scriptures have something to say about that. Do I hold on to that, or do I hold on to the truth and the words and works of Christ? And he says very clearly, you have to throw down and let go of her works, and you have to hold fast and hold tight to mine. It's the same word he uses when he says, I'm going to throw them onto a sickbed. The word in the Greek is used once again here. He says, I'm not trying to throw any extra burden on you. I'm not trying to throw any extra burden. I'm not trying to burden your back with any heavy weight. I'm just simply saying, let go of the burden. Let go. Throw it down. If you don't throw the burden down, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be burdened. You're going to stay burdened. You're going to be ending up in a sickbed that leads to death. So throw that rope down and grab hold of my way. Trust me. Hold on to my word. He says, do not hold on to these false teachings of this woman. You can't do it. You have to either go deeper into the things of Christ or deeper into the things of Satan. She was promising deep thoughts and sophisticated theology. He says, yeah, there, that's deep, but it's deep what? You know what it's deep. Something I can't even say from the pulpit. That's deep, but he says, what I want you to do is go deeper into Jesus and his truth and his love. You need, you need the true doctrine of Christ. And you've got to choose. Which depths are you going to be swimming in and living in? He says, if you choose my works, and if you just do this one thing, church, I'm not trying to burden you with 20 different commandments here. I'm just saying, there's one area we need to talk about, sexual immorality. Let's deal with that. And if you do that, and if you hold on to my promise, I promise you, verse 26 and 27, you will conquer. I'll give you authority over the nations. And you will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I've received authority from my own father. Now, some of you say, that sounds kind of strange. Like, why would I want that? I'm a really nice person. I don't want to rule over anybody. I don't want to smash anybody like pottery being broken. Does anybody here say, you know, that's a promise I really don't want to claim? Don't really feel like that's something that suits my personality. Or people may look at me funny if I say, I'm going to rule the nations and crush you know, the enemies with a rod of iron, like dashing pieces of pottery to the ground. Does that seem like it doesn't fit your personality, maybe our generation, our way of thinking, our, our tolerant way of thinking? Well, let's take a little deeper look at it, okay? Let's take, take a little deeper look. Where does this imagery come from? 
Somebody should know, in the Old Testament, where does this imagery come from in the Bible? One of the Psalms. Come on now. Somebody, yes. Amen, brother. What's your name? What is it? Parnell. My man, Parnell. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. The nations are raging against God. They're just mocking God and his people. You stupid Christians, what are you talking about, this God that rules in heaven? I rule my own life. Hello. And then God just sits back and says, and he chuckles. He's like, okay, we'll see what happens. Okay, we'll see what happens. And at the end, he says, my Messiah will come, and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And it says that those who are smart will kiss the Son. They will kiss Jesus in allegiance and love. Otherwise, you'll be destroyed. Okay, so you have two choices. Jesus says, this same authority that I received from my Father, I'm granting to you. Does that mean that you're going to crush the nations with a rod of iron, that you're literally going to beat people in the head with a big stick? Well, hang with me here. The word for you will rule the nations is literally the word shepherd. You will shepherd the nations. Okay? So it gives a little nuance to it now. Instead of you saying, I'm a tyrant, I'm going to rule the world as a Christian. Woohoo! No, it's, it's saying, you're going to shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. Yes, you're going to shepherd the nations. What does that mean? Well, the, the shepherd's staff sometimes was made of a big club, and sometimes they'd put like an iron cap on the top of it so it wouldn't uh, get gnarled and you know, broken and splintered. And, they, and the shepherd would use that rod to protect his flock, right? To protect the sheep from the wolves and the bears and the lions and so forth. And so he's saying, I'm going to make you a shepherd like me to protect the flock. When someone sneaks in like a Jezebel, you're going to have the heart and the conviction and the courage to drive them out and say something about it. That's not right. That's not what Jesus taught us. We need to hold fast to Jesus and not the ways of Jezebel. Because if you hold fast to me, I will make you someone who shares my own desires and heart to protect my church from the predators that lurk and they try to come into your own midst and devour you. A heart of protection for the weak and the vulnerable. When, when you see a young child who's been abused in their own bedroom by some family member or some friend that came over, you will know that my heart is against that. You have the same heart to protect and stand up for that child and say, that's not right. When you see people who are weak and vulnerable being abused like Naboth in his vineyard, people who are being taken advantage of because they didn't have a lot to start with and they weren't in a position of power, you see someone else coming in with their greed and their power trying to take control, you say, that's not right. I want to shepherd this person back into the light, back into a place of safety, out of the darkness. Jezebel is seducing Jesus' own people. She's seducing my servants, he says. These are my servants. They belong to me. I'm not going to stand for the seduction of my people, which is going to end up in a sickbed and eventually to their own death. I'm not going to stand for that. I'm going to, I'm going to come to them and save them. I want them to repent and turn and live. I want you to help me and shepherd these people. Bring them home. Out of the darkness, into the lights. This theme of the, the scepter, the rod, and the, the star, he says next, I will give you the, the morning star. If you're an overcomer, if you're with me, I will give you the morning star. What does that mean? The morning star. Well, in the Bible, there's this prophecy in Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17. We looked at Numbers, chapters 22 through 24, last week when we looked at Balaam, the false prophet, who sometimes said some good things and sometimes said some bad things. And one of the bad things he did was he led Israel into sexual immorality, idolatry, and 24,000 people died in Numbers, chapter 25. But in Numbers 24, he said something that was true, and it's a messianic promise. It's a prophecy about Jesus the Messiah. And he says this, that a star will arise, a scepter will arise in Jacob. That means in Israel. And he will crush the enemies of God, and he will rule. A scepter, a star, will arise. 
Same promise that we were given here in Revelation chapter 2. That Jesus says, I will give you the morning star, and I will rule the scepter, and so will you. What's he mean? Well, the, the, the morning star was the star that would be the most visible, and the most clear, and the most brilliant and bright in the darkest time of the night. In, in the darkest moments where you can't see out of that tunnel, in the darkest moments where you can't see in front of you, what is God doing? Why is my life hurting so much? He says, I will give you the morning star. The star to guide you out of that. You know, when Jesus was born into this dark and dreary world, the star led the wise men to where he was laying in the, in the, uh, in the manger. The star led them to the place of hope. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we're told that Jesus himself is the morning star. And this is the focus of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, that we have received a prophetic word. Do you, do you hear the word of God coming to you today? Do you have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church? You've received a prophetic word better than a voice from heaven, Peter says. Amen. Alluding to when God spoke from heaven and said, this is my son in whom I love. I'm well pleased with him. Listen to him. This is better than a voice from heaven. We have the Bible. We have a, a better word, a written word. It's sure. It's true. It's prophetic. It's been fulfilled in Christ. He says you have a prophetic word, a better word from heaven, so pay attention. Listen. Hold fast. It's dark. You can't see, but hold fast to this word. It's true. Peter says it's like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. like the sunrise at the darkest point of the night, rising up, dawning. Jesus is saying, I will give you hope. I will give you healing. Your life is, is full of pain. It's full of confusion. You're trying to make choices. Which way should I go? He says, I will guide you. I will lead you. I'll give you light and truth along the way. Now here at Living Hope, we're, we're a bipolar church, just like all other churches. We're all bipolar in some way. I mean, some of us are worse than others, yeah. You don't have to admit. I know. We know, Cynthia. We all have this confusion. Some days are really great. Some days are really bad. We get, we get turned around. We lose hope. We start to doubt. We say so many kind words and all of a sudden something just really rude and insulting comes out of our mouth. We are bipolar people. We're a bipolar church. And Jesus says to us, Living Hope, what fellowship does light have with darkness? I'm the morning star. Come out of the darkness. Come out of that sick bed. Come out of that way of thinking and living. Put on light. Live in the light. Bathe in the light. Our own, our own vision as a church, Living Hope's vision statement is this. We have a vision to be a loving community of disciples, united across cultures and classes, speaking God the Father's truth, sharing Jesus' mercy, and walking in the spirit of peace until the shadows retreat and Christ, our hope, returns. We're waiting on Christ, our hope, the morning star, to return. Can you hold fast to the teaching of Jesus this morning? Can you hold fast to the prophetic word that he's given? Can you hold fast to Jesus, the light of the world? Let's pray.